Hey everybody, this is an introduction to ION 2020, the first couple episodes I'm going to tag this introduction to, just because when I first started podcasting, I was really new to it, and I didn't understand how sound worked, I didn't really understand the format of podcasting and so forth, so if you'll bear with me on the first 15 to 20 shows or so, I guarantee if you get through those ones, you'll uh, start enjoying a lot of the topics that we cover on this show. I do have a Monday through Friday show, so if you want to subscribe to the show, you can do that as well. You can listen to the newer episodes, but if you're one of those people that starts at episode one and then goes through, just keep that in mind that I was brand new to podcasting at the time, and I'd really appreciate you subscribing to the show, though. I welcome you to listen to another perspective on the 2020 election. I take a libertarian take on these things, and if you like to hear a different take on the 2020 election then definitely this is a place for you, okay? So thank you for joining me, and uh, go ahead and subscribe to the show so you can hear the show tomorrow, the brand new shows that we put out day in and day out, Monday through Friday, okay? Eye on 2020, episode six. Thank you for joining me on the Eye on 2020 podcast. My name is Ray Eaton, and I will be your host as we move towards November of 2020. I plan to do all the research on these presidential candidates so you don't have to. So if you like politics, enjoy, because if 2020 is anything like 2016, we are in for a treat. Oh, and did I mention I'm a libertarian through and through? Welcome, everybody. This is Ray Eaton, your host of the Eye on 2020 podcast. I hope everyone's having a very good day today, and thank you for tuning in. Uh, I appreciate anyone that's listening to this podcast, and as we grow in our numbers, as we grow as a follow, you know, as listeners, I uh, cer- certainly hope that you guys will rate this podcast as well as um, put some comments down and send me some comments and so forth, because I'm really interested in uh, hearing what you guys got to say. Um, I'm going to call this section Liberty Lunch because I came out to work today and I just, you know, I've been, I, I drive around all day as a salesperson uh, and I, you know, usually I'll stop and I'll find a place that's quiet and grab some lunch and eat that and then uh, I get to thinking about things and I was like, man, maybe I'll go ahead and uh, record a little bit today just because there's, you know, there's some stuff that I've been thinking about. I had a conversation with someone a couple of days back, and I was really just kind of, uh, we were talking about the Trump phenomenon, we were talking about Donald Trump in general um, as a candidate uh, going into 2020, and as a president for the last uh, two years, and I was really, you know, when I was talking to her, I just thought to myself that what would a libertarian think about, think about Donald Trump? Because, you know, I come from a libertarian perspective, and he's been good and he's done bad. So I just thought, you know, going into 2020, is a libertarian really going to vote for Donald Trump down the road? Uh, I wanted to kind of just throw out some of my thoughts on that. So Donald Trump, when he came into office, he had had tons of things that he was promising. Uh, He promised, you know, they would lower taxes. He promised that he would, um, you know, get us out of a, get her, 
suspend Obama pay, Obamacare or pass legislation to get rid of Obamacare. He promised to put up this border wall. He promised, you know, there's tons of promises that he had. And those are the things I think I'm going to go over today and see where he stacks up on meeting those promises. But also, you know, if those are things that as a libertarian, we would be okay with him doing. Because that's what it really comes down to. Um, As a libertarian, what do you think about those particular candidates? And you know, I'm a libertarian. What do I think about those? I don't. I I consider myself, in general, I consider myself an anarcho-capitalist, but I do have the reality. Like that's that's from a ideological perspective, right? And I do think that there's no need for government. I think that the private sector would take up most of those services that the government provides. Um, who's going to build the roads? Well, someone will, because we need to get places right. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how that would happen. There's lots of th- philosophy. There's lots of theories on how it would happen. But in general, I tend to think that the private sector would do just as good, if not a better job, than the government at pre- providing all those services and at a cheaper cost, more efficiently, and so forth. So let's let's establish that. Anarcho-capitalist, ideologically, yes. But we do live in the real world, right? Um, here we are, we're living in a world where there is government on every square inch of the planet, except for Antarctica, which that's split by a bunch of other governments. So pretty much on every square inch of the planet, you have somebody that has a gun to your head and is telling you what you have to do. Some of them are more totalitarian, like you have in North Korea, and then you have others who are a little bit more free, and you have your freedom indexes and so forth that, you know, different organizations create. So you could look at those and see, you know, where we stand in America. But I think, you know, we've been steadily declining from, you know, near the top to, you know, down to like 17th or 20th or something um, in the last several years. So here we are in America. We're a pretty free country and so forth. We have a government, though. We have a government. You have a city government. You have a state government, you have a federal government, um, let's work on, you know, making those things more efficient, let's work on, you know, bringing down that government in some way, um, limiting that government other ways, just, that's fine to do, and since we do live in the real world, since we do live in a world where there is government, you have to kind of, um, make some decisions based upon that, right? So, you have to figure out where these leaders stack up, and, from a libertarian perspective, in order to make a decision on, you know, whether you're going to vote for them or not, I don't know. So a lot of libertarians don't do vote, a lot of libertarians don't vote, and that's your own personal prerogative. That's however you feel in your mind whether you should vote or not, you make that decision, but at least you'll have a general awareness of those candidates' positions, and you'll have an awareness of you know, where they stand from a libertarian perspective by listening to this podcast. And that's what I hope to do. I hope to be able to go over these, all of these politicians, figure out where they stand from a libertarian perspective, and then let you make those decisions based upon that. But also covering the news is something I want to do from a libertarian perspective as well. Covering the day-to-day news of the election, focusing in on that. There's plenty of people out there that are going to you know, get into the philosophy 
of libertarianism and liberty in anarcho-capitalism on their podcast. And that's not really what I want to do with this particular podcast. I want to focus in on the elections, and that's where we're going. Okay, so let's get into the actual politics of 2020. So what I mean by that is let's get into the... Um, the state-by-state analysis of where Donald Trump would stand versus any of his competitors, because you can assume that some states like California, Connecticut, are going to vote specifically for uh, whoever is the Democratic nominee, no matter what. And then you have uh, certain states are going to vote for, you know, South Carolina, for example, will vote for Donald Trump no matter what, unless there's a very strong independent candidate, which is rare. Um, you're going to have Donald Trump win specific states, and you're going to have whoever is the Democratic nominee uh, his, is going to win certain states as well. So I'm pulling this from <clears throat> from a article on the Columbus Dispatch, and it says, uh, Columns says seven states key to the 2020 presidential election. So they're breaking it down to there's specifically seven states that are going to be the key to the 2020 election. So it's, they say it seems almost irresponsible to start talking about the Electoral College results in 2020 so soon after the 2018 midterm elections. But history and the 2018 results foreshadow what is likely to occur in 2020, which I don't know that I specifically believe that because usually the midterms don't draw as many people as the um, the presidential election would, and but this specific this particular midterm was was a little bit different because it did draw a lot more people out and I think it's because there was so much dis- divisiveness on the Trump issue you were able to get more people out to the polls more people were excited about it this year and getting out to the polls to vote for their particular nominee Donald Trump was trying to get the people that otherwise wouldn't have voted in the 2018 midterms to get out there and vote as well. Um, so, I mean, he won He won some important races during that time, not specifically him, but people that he was supporting. But as well, there was, you know, a lot of Democrats that got elected in 2018 as well um, in a year that, you know, you typically would not have as many people voting. So <clears throat> is the 2018 a foreshadowing of what 2020 can be? Possibly. I would say I would, I would definitely say possibly. So you have the uh, the first two big assumptions going back to the article. The first two big assumptions are that Donald Trump will run for re-election. So yeah. If as long as Donald Trump runs for re-election, then we can make these assumptions. And you could also say um that there won't be a viable independent candidate who will shift any of these states in one direction. But they go on and they say, on the Republican side, it's a safe bet that the following states will vote for Trump in 2020, and he will get those electoral college votes. You have Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Ohio, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming. I swear to you, though, like, I I swear Ohio is typically, and there's 18 electoral college, college 
votes there. So that's a pretty hefty um, number to get in Ohio. So the Democrats will definitely be fighting to get Ohio. Um, and I think West Virginia sometimes is a swing state as well because they're not usually uh, they're not usually voting Democrat. They they're they vote Democrat and Republican. They're not one way or the other. So, and then the only other one that I thought was kind of unusual in there might have been Iowa, but I could be wrong because Iowa is just the first state that that does their straw poll, so they're kind of a bellwether of how the candidates are going to do, but they probably, they must probably go um, Republican the majority of the time, that's why they put these particular states on the list. Um, so then you have, some will argue that Georgia and Ohio are battleground states, so they're defending it right here, the Ohio thing. And Georgia, th in the 2018 election, was a hotly contested state on their Senate race and also on their gov governor race. So that's why they're putting Georgia as a possible... Or that's why some people are arguing that Georgia is a battleground state. But in terms of Georgia, one they say one close gubernatorial election in the first midterm of a Republican president doesn't mean it will go blue in 2020. Georgia is changing, but hasn't gone blue presidentially since 1992, when they elected Clinton. Trump won Georgia by more than 5% in 2016. As for Ohio, given the nearly 9% Trump win in 2016, and the comfortable election of all statewide Republicans in 2018, Ohio has lost its status as a battleground state going into 2020. The, those 24 states give tw Trump 204 electoral college votes. Wow, I had no idea, and maybe I just don't pay attention to it, that Ohio Trump won by 9%. That's absolutely insane in a state that has always been a hotly contested battleground state, almost as much as Florida is. So on the Democrat side, these states and the District of Columbia will vote for blue, vote for blue or the Democrats in 2020. California, 55 electoral college votes. That's a huge number. Colorado, 9. Connecticut, Delaware, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington. Obviously, Vermont's going to go that way. I always wonder about Virginia, though, because sometimes that is a battleground state, but since they have so many people that live in the greater Washington, D.C. area in Virginia, I think that that forces the state to go blue most of the time. And then Minnesota, that seems like one that might be a swing state, but I guess not. I've always wondered about that because it's the Midwest, and typically a lot of these Midwestern countries go towards the go for uh, Republicans, but I guess Minnesota is an outlier in that way. So Colorado and Virginia have become the Democrats' Ohio. These states are no longer battleground states, but reliable blue states. Ten of 11 state and federal elected officials in Colorado and Virginia are Democrats. Seven of eight of Nevada statewide election officials are now Democrats. 
If Nevada goes blue in 2020 as expected, it will join those two states as a reliably blue state. Those 19 states of the District and the District of Columbia give the Democratic ticket 229 electoral votes. So assuming that Trump gets what he, what they said he's going to get automatically, and the Democrat, whoever that is, gets these particular states, the Democrats are winning 204 to 229. So it leaves seven swing states, and then we're going back to the article, with just seven states left to allocate Trump will be 66 electoral votes shy of re-election, and the Democratic ticket will need 41 electoral votes to win back the presidency. The seven states are Arizona, Florida, Michigan, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. So when I look at Florida, they they won down in Florida the uh, governorship, and also they have now have two Republican, um, two Republican senators down there. I think it's Marco Rubio and whoever their uh, governor was is now their senator. So Florida seems like a pretty reliably reliably um, Republican state, but then again, it's always been the it's always been the state that kind of swings back and forth, right? Now you have Arizona, which I've always thought to myself that that was definitely a Republican state, but um, according to this, that's a, that's a swing state, so we'll go with that. Then you have Michigan, which Trump won last election cycle, but typically has gone Democrat, and that was like a huge deal, a huge deal that he took the nomination for president, um after winning, I think Michigan was what won it for him. Now you have New Hampshire, which only has four electoral college votes. Um, so that's probably not too big of a deal for them. But um, with all the libertarians over in New Hampshire, I think they're the with the Free State Project out there. Um, shout out to that because I think that's a great thing. You do have a lot of uh, liber- libertarian-minded folks out there. So you might, in a place like New Hampshire, you might be able to get a third-party candidate that's a strong third-party candidate to actually make a little bit of an impact um, one way or the other for the Democrats or for the Republicans, actually. North Carolina seems like a very liberal state in some ways, but they have them as a swing state. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Now, we're talking about the Rust Belt in those Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin areas. I think that's what they call that area, and that's where, you know, there used to be a bunch of factory jobs, and now there's not as many factory jobs. So, Looking at those, Trump has a very has a very populist message, a very pro-American, bring back the jobs, bring back the factories kind of message, and I think that that is why he was able to win those going into 2016. And I think that as long as the economy keeps trugging along pretty good, as long as he can claim credit for that, and as long as the appearances that these jobs are coming back. Um, then he's going to have a leg to stand on with these people. And I think that that might help him in those those particular states. Now, going on into the article. In the 2018 midterm elections, Arizona slightly favored Democrat Kristen Sinema for U.S. Senator, but re-elected Republican Doug Ducey in a 15-point landslide. 
Florida cited by a whisker with the Republican Ron DeSantis for governor and Republican Rick Scott for U.S. Senator. And I remember, I think there was even recounts demanded on that one and on the Georgia side. So um, definitely that'll be a close race. Michigan re-elected Democrat U.S. Senator Debbie Stabnow, though John James' six-point loss was closer than expected and put Democrat Gretchen Whitmer in charge as governor. New Hampshire re-elected a Republican, Chris Sununu, as governor. North Carolina sat out this election. Um, Pennsylvania re-elected a Democrat for their, as their governor. So re-elected, though. So usually it's easier for an incumbent to get elected than it is for a, a newbie to get elected. And then you have, they elected Democrat U.S. Senator Bob Casey. And I think he was re-elected as well. So... When you think about that, Pennsylvania is solidly Democrat, and they always have been, kind of. So you wonder where Donald Trump is going to get the votes. But then again, he won Pennsylvania last election cycle, which was very surprising to all the pundits. But they were surprised by a lot of things. Okay, finally, going back to the article. Finally, Wisconsin ended up Republican. Ended or Wisconsin ended Republican Scott Walker's tenure as governor by 31,000 votes and, and re-elected Democrat Tammy Baldwin to the U.S. Senate. So Scott Walker is no longer the governor in Wisconsin, and Tammy Baldwin is a Democrat who is their U.S. Senator. What do these results likely tell us, the article says? That Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina will likely, or likely will remain red or Republican in 2020, bringing Trump's Trump to 259 electoral votes, and that both parties will face the same challenge in 2020 to win Michigan, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin by appealing to the working class suburban women voters and, and suburban women voters in those states. It would seem Trump has an advantage in that he can secure new trade deals with Europe Japan and China and follow up to his new deals with North or with South Korea, Mexico and Canada. Keep in mind, in places like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Trump's trade stance is supported by pro-union blue-collar Democrats like Ohio's US Senator Sherrod Brown. So his appeal to workers in manufacturing, construction, transportation and trade will remain high. That's interesting. So that's what Trump's appeal is. And he has, like I said, he has a very populist message. And there he is. He appeals to those people in those states. And that is going to help him out big time. Hugely, as hugely as Donald Trump might say. It also means that the seven battleground states will get hit with a massive wave of attention from both parties. So if you... (laughs) going off of the script from this article, but if you are ready for some commercials and you live in any of those states, boy, let's be ready. Now, I always enjoy watching all these commercials and stuff because I just think it's um, absolutely hilarious, the hypocrisy in them, just, you know, the politics in them and so forth. I just think it's always funny to watch them, but that's just me. So going back, it also means that the seven battleground states will hit a 
get hit with a massive wave of attention from both parties. If you thought 2018 midterm elections was exhausting, just wait until the 2020 primary series begins. About a year from now. So that's when the primaries are going to be happening in about a year. So all I got to say, all I have to say to you is stay tuned to the Ion 2020 podcast. My name is Ray Eaton. I am your host, and I am going to bring you the news, keep you up to date, and go over the policies and politics of these candidates going forward so that you are ready to make decisions in the 2020 election. Honestly, all I'm hoping for is Ron Paul to run in 2020 as a libertarian or as a Republican or both. I don't care. I would just love to see him get out there and shine. He is the most consistent guy that I've ever, that, that the most consistent politician. He's not really a politician. Um, but yeah, I would just love to see him get out there, but I, I don't see that happening. Um, somewhere I read, somebody talked about that as a rumor, but I just don't see that happening. It would be exciting. It would get a lot of us, you know, Ron Paul supporters from the, you know, 2008, 2012 campaign to, you know, get us all excited. It'd be fun to see him beat up on Bernie Sanders, Bernie, Bernie Sanders, and uh, that would just be really exciting because Bernie is the antith- antithesis of Ron Paul. But even my sister, the progressive, has compared Bernie Sanders to Ron Paul. And the only thing that they agree on or the only thing that I would say that they uh, that would make them similar is the fact that they were both older guys that got a bunch of young people's support and that they are both ideologically, um, or ideal ideologues, I guess you'd say. And that means that they are both firm on their issues and they are unchanging on their issues and they're not scared to, you know, challenge people on those issues. I think Ron Paul even more so than Bernie Sanders, but that's the only thing I could really see about those two. But it would be it would be a fun day to see those two duke it out on an on an, on a debate stage. Um, but the likelihood of a third party candidate getting onto that de- de- debate stage isn't going to happen. Um, I would you know obviously we'd love to see that happen. I know that Gary Johnson has fought to try to make that happen, and even with the support that he had last term around. He was just a babbling idiot when it came down to it. And, you know, not always because he was, you know, a lot of the interviews he did very well. But the only time he got picked up, you know, on the news cycle is when there was, you know, these little mistakes that you make um, where you're unprepared or where you just, you know, say things that sound crazy. And then that's when he'd get picked up on the news cycle. So, um I would, I don't, I think that the system that we have is a little bit rigged for the politician who is running as a Republican or a Democrat. We all know that. It's very, it would be almost impossible for a third party candidate to come and get onto that debate stage because they made that mistake with Ross Perot in the 90s. He was on that debate stage, he did well. And the Republicans and Democrats did not like that, so they changed the rules around so that it wouldn't happen again. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. So, this is your place to find it, though. If you're looking to find out more about candidates, if you're looking to just have general news about the 2020 election, this is your place. Come back and see me. You know, share this share this with your friends tell your friends about the podcast uh soon i think that we're gonna be on apple Podcasts as well and that'll be good that'll be something that i'm excited to happen see happen i'll let you know when it happens and then you'll be able to share it with your friends let them know about it comment rate my podcast because hopefully i'm getting better since the first one obviously i'm new to this obviously i am true to this though and going for the next two years it's gonna be an exciting thing to follow um and you will hear it all here first on the ion 2020 podcast so keep your eyes peeled because here we go